0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the
1: Bloomberg. Good morning, David Gura with Michael McKee this morning. Tom Keane at the Council on Foreign Relations. In just a few moments, he's going to sit down with Robert Kaplan, the President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank sitting. of Dallas. <laughs> we a, have a visual. A we see the man himself if, in his... Uh, if you
2: have a, a you, you can listen here, or if you're on the internet, you can pull up the web <laughs> feed from the CFR.
1: You've interviewed Robert Kaplan before. Situate him in the, the, the pantheon of, of Fed presidents right well, now. He's mind.
2: becoming a little more influential. Of course, he's fairly new, and it takes a little while to get your sea legs, but uh, he's a guy who was an uh, executive at Goldman Sachs and a Harvard University professor for a long time, so a very smart man, uh, different than previous Dallas Fed presidents, and he's much more of a centrist and much more of a, a practical uh, thinker rather than uh, coming from a particular political point of view. And uh, he is a voter this year.
1: Uh, and tell us a bit about the Dallas Fed itself. You look at all of these uh, various districts. What's, what's the, the, the historical reputation of the Dallas Fed?
2: Well, the historical reputation has been very, very free market, anti-regulation, and uh, very tough on inflation. And uh, we have no inflation to speak of. So at this point, that's less of an issue. Uh, But Kaplan is less – it's not that he's against free markets, but he is uh, not pushing that as much. Uh, They're also very concerned with trade issues. And they do a lot of work on the U.S. and Mexico and have for years. And now, of course, that's come front and center as an issue.
1: Absolutely. As we look ahead to the the next FOMC meeting taking place on June the 13th, I believe, 13th and 14th in, in Washington, Uh, DC, as you mentioned, Robert Kaplan, a voting uh, member of the FOMC this year. He's the 13th president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, former professor at the Harvard Business School, author of a number of books on on leadership uh, as well, and still fairly new to the job, right, Mike?
2: Yes. uh, This is, I think, his second year, uh, and it's his first year as a voter. And so far he has voted with the majority in every case to uh, raise rates or hold uh, in alternating meetings. Uh, We'll see what he does. I I would bet you, given what he has said, that he is going to vote for a rate increase in June since yesterday we saw uh, Lil Brainerd, the, dove, uh, the dove's dove on the Fed, say a rate increase is likely uh, very soon. And everybody takes that to mean June.
1: A number of, of uh, Fed policymakers speaking here before the quiet period that precedes uh, the FOMC. Uh, meeting, are,
2: are, 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 go, go ahead. Yeah, story. you know they expanded the quiet period. They moved it back, so it's longer. And I was sitting with a Fed staffer yesterday who was uh, listening in on Lil Brainerd's speech, and she said, "Thank God, <laughs> 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 less we have to worry about <laughs> more days in which they can't make yeah. markets move around."
1: Well, yesterday, weeks was before the last meeting. It seems like that there were a tremendous amount of speeches. It seems like the quantity of speeches has increased. Uh, let's head over to the uh, Council on Formulations up Park Avenue from our Bloomberg 11:30 studios. Tom Keene interviewing Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed.
0: I'm not going to go through your bio because it will just take too long good. other than to say he was Marshall Professor at Harvard Business School by way of the University of Kansas, which is always a, a, a good thing. What have you learned about the heritage of the Dallas Fed parachuting in?
3: Well, uh... There's a great history in the Dallas Fed, but what the the most significant thing to me about the 11th district is uh, the the business dynamics. It's yeah. uh, we're largest energy producer in the United States, largest uh, exporting state, Texas is in the United States, growing. Maybe very the rapidly. president
0: won't go after you after he's gone after the Germans.
3: Well, I won't Texas. even go near that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and we're growing very very rapidly. We're. Uh, Migration of people and firms to the state of Texas in particular has been a, a significant trend. It's accelerating over the last 15 years. If
0: we have a national growth rate, 2-3%, whatever it is, what's the Texas growth
3: rate if we're 2 3 We're growing about a full percentage point faster over the last mm-hmm. 15 years on average every mm-hmm. year. Uh, and so um, what it's going to be this year, I'm not sure. No. But, the, but but for lots of reasons, uh, people uh, and firms are moving to uh, the 11th district. So we're growing very rapidly.
0: And that'll be one of our themes here, uh, particularly to dive into the concept of uh, John Edwards, two Americas. And maybe we can talk not your districts outside Texas, but the two Texases is a, is a more general statement. Um, I, I want to go to a, an idea that I was talking with our Matt Bessler about. And, and, and this is this wonderful thing. This is a mouthful, folks. For those of you not in economics, uh, this is why you're not in economics. The Dallas Fed trimmed mean PCE. Yeah. That's your proprietary view of inflation. Right. What I know within my work at Bloomberg is inflation and the vector of it now is front and center. Is the vector up? or is it vector to disinflation again?
3: So it's been weak the last couple of months. If you go step a little further back, it's been gradually increasing from 14, 15, to 16, now to 17. The the thing that's giving people pause is over the last two months, particularly March, uh, for a number of, I think, idiosyncratic reasons, Mm -hmm. uh, inflation dipped telecommunications pricing, other factors. But you notice the PCE came out, uh, uh, personal consumption expenditures came out yesterday. And I think it showed me that the April number is sort of back on trend. The number for most people quote the trailing 12 months you'll notice the trailing 12 months after yesterday declined. But the reason for that is not that April was weak. It was that a year ago, April was so strong. So I actually think, uh, while inflation has been slow and uneven, I don't mm-hmm. think we have a deteriorating trend. I don't believe that's what's going on.
0: Two tax off this. One is the Dallas Heritage. I'll get to it in a moment. But let's talk about the more Washington-centric analysis. We heard that from uh, Governor Brainerd uh, earlier today, and there'll be other Fed speakers all diving into this mix. Is your take that the prism around that table at the Eccles building, is your take that it's a traditional study of inflation? Or is there a new-new to how the Fed itself has to deal with this odd thing?
3: There's definitely, in my judgment, a new-new. Now, I'm not an economist. I'm a business person. But I I work with lots of economists. Mm -hmm. So I think that gives me a little different perspective. But the things that are new, I'll mention two in particular. Uh, Global overcapacity, particularly because of China. China has been growing GDP on average about 6.5% a year. But the problem is it's, uh, it, they're increasing debt to GDP in order to achieve that growth. And they're creating overcapacity, not just in infrastructure, but in industries like steel. So that's increasing global right. overcapacity. That's creating a headwind for <clears> inflation. <throat> and then the second thing that's significant uh, is technology-enabled disruption, which is uh, a- another way of saying machines are increasingly replacing people. But consumers can use technology now to shop for pricing more than ever in our lifetime. And therefore, the pricing power of businesses is less than has it any, been at any time in our- Do
0: the PhD economists in Washington know that? I mean, a guy like you comes from a different uh, world. Uh, uh, the guy up in Minneapolis comes from it. Kishkari comes from a different world, et cetera. Do you guys have an advantage because you didn't read the textbooks?
3: Well, I think many of the many Fed presidents, or I would say even most, do what I do. I, look, I talk to all the economists. I go through all the economic theory, all the economic data. And then I talk to probably 30 CEOs every month We do surveys among businesses, small businesses, big businesses. We do not only industrial surveys, but energy surveys, service sector surveys. Mm -hmm. And I put them both together. So a lot of my understanding about what's going on out there, I look at data, but a lot of it also comes from talking to business leaders.
0: Talking to business leaders is in the present. What are your thoughts on forward guidance, this, this concept, this silliness of data dependency? Do you find the dots to be a constructive tool?
3: Well, so there's a few questions in there. So let's talk yes. about data. Let's take data dependency for starters. So I, I'm, not, I'm not crazy about the term data dependency. I, I prefer to look at data. But as a business person, again, I like to look at secular drivers. And then data, as the economy unfolds, either confirms or makes me question mm-hmm. the effect these drivers are having. So uh, for example, GDP growth is sluggish. I think the big driver behind that, one of the big drivers, is aging demographics, slowing population growth, slowing workforce growth. And so that makes, right. that makes sense to me. Uh, so uh, I think you've got to look at both. But I prefer to look at drivers, and then the data sort of confirms, like it would as a business person, what track we're on or whether, whether the drivers are having an effect, I think.
0: Kerry, let's go two hours. This is going too well.
3: All right, so Uh, you talked about the dot plot. The dot plot. So let me explain to people. I think most people here probably know. Come on, we
0: all know what the dot plot is.
3: Well, uh, shockingly, some people may not know what the dot plot is. But every quarter, uh, all the Fed presidents and the governors submit, uh, we all submit, our forecast for 17, 18, 19, in the medium term, GDP, inflation, not only headline, but core, uh, unemployment rate. Uh, and what we think the neutral rate is likely to be, which we'll come back to, settle out. So that's referred to affectionately or not so affectionately as the dot plot or the summary of economic projections. But that gives you a pretty good feel every quarter of what each of us is thinking about and the views they are, there's a scatter chart, but they tend to congeal around uh, certain means. Where's the
0: vector of that chart right now? What are we going to see in future dot? I mean, you, I know you're filling your form out on the way from Reagan into the Eccles building.
3: Right, but, magically. But,
0: I mean, come on. There's a lot of analysis going into this thing, but is it a valuable tool? Sure. And what's it going to show us in a number of months? I,
3: if somebody who's been observing the Fed now for 30 years, that's me in my business career, I think, I think it's very useful. Um, because it gives me a pretty good idea about what every participant around that table is thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when there are differences, it gives us a basis to debate. So I think it's very useful. My own view, uh, just my dot, uh, has been GDP growth, for example, this year uh, would be between 2 two and a quarter percent I think the unemployment rate's 4.4%. Now I think it's going to decline further as we get into the end of this year. It's not the only employment measure I look at. I look at something called U6, which doesn't go on the dot plot, which I'll come back to. And my own view is inflation will slowly but gradually over the next two or three years, Mm -hmm. not immediately, but over the next two or three years, get to 2%.
0: Within your wonderful books on leadership, there is implied through all these books confidence. One of the great mysteries in this room at the Council on Foreign Relations, one of the great mysteries in your Dallas district, is where is business investment? Where is the confidence to move forward? Let me just start with the mathiness. Is it because the people that you used to talk to at HBS, they can't figure out where the risk-free rate is?
3: Are the distortions so great? So let's take, let's take the first part. Uh, business confidence right now is high. Okay? There's a lot of business optimism. And you see business investment is stronger this year than it's been in the last few years. The, the issue is uh, that's great. And it can help GDP growth, but 70%, approximately 65, 70% of the economy is mm-hmm. the consumer. So at the end of the day, businesses are more optimistic for several reasons, but ultimately, everyone is watching the consumer. The consumer is the primary driver of GDP growth. Increased business investment, though, helps, and businesses right now are optimistic. Do they see it? it the, the disconnect right now is while they're more optimistic, Then when you ask a business leader, do you see improvement in your business? Oftentimes, the answer is not yet, but we're expecting it.
0: We're expecting it. We're still there. Does that have to do with Reinhardt Rogoff length or duration coming out of the financial crisis? It just takes time to heal? Or is there a new format of globalization where American business is waiting to pull the trigger on the nostalgic investment we
3: remember? So for me, I think some business leaders are hopeful uh, that fiscal and other policies might help improve GDP growth. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, in addition, though, some of the things that have been headwinds, which I don't think are going away, sluggish population growth, which has a big impact on consumer spending, and sluggish GDP growth but also increasing disruption and new business mm-hmm. models increasingly are displacing old ones, which are giving many business leaders pause. Even though they want to invest in their business, they're not sure that the model that they're investing in right. is going to be sustainable. So I think that's a, mm-hmm. that's a countervailing headwind, which is uh, putting a, right. a bit of tamping down a little bit of the optimism. So
0: you wander down to College Station, and you have to give a lecture at the business school, and some wise guy in an Acor uniform stands up in, in the back and goes, excuse me, sir, do you believe in GDP? Because that's a whole belief right now, that these statistics, these traditional models that yeah. we have don't work anymore. How do you respond to the youngster uh, at Texas a Yeah,
3: so here's, here's the things that are clear, and here are the things that are getting debated. G- GDP growth still, it's not perfect. But it's still a pretty good measure uh, of uh, mm-hmm. economic activity. There's an issue a lot of people raise about transfer pricing. You know, Apple uh, innovates a phone here, but they manufacture it overseas. Mm-hmm. But I still think GDP growth is a uh, pretty good measure. The debate has been about the uh, unemployment rate, uh, and famously, you know, many many people have gotten on television and said the that 4.4%, that's a great number, but it's not a real number. So I like to go to U6, which I mentioned earlier. Here's what U6 is in the lingo. So U3, to use the lingo, is the headline unemployment rate. U6 is unemployed plus discouraged workers plus people who are working part-time if in a better economy, would rather work full-time. I think that's a better measure of slack. That's at 8.6% right now. Here's the problem. The pre-recession low in that number was 8.1%. So we're gradually moving toward the pre-recession low. And in a 160 million person economy, uh, difference between 8.6 and 8.1, it's less than a million workers, while there's slack There's not as much slack as people might think. And here's the second problem, which we'll get to. Where there is slack, it is highly correlated to lower levels of educational attainment, i.e. college and less than college. That participation rates and employment rates, if you finish college, are very high in the United States. They could get better, but they're pretty high. Even if you've finished some college, they're relatively high. If you went to high school, though, they're lower. And if you've got some high school education, they're much lower. And so the problem is where there's slack and discourage right. workers, there's, there's a high correlation between high school and less than high school. And that's why there's a number of things we're going to need to do to address that.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. I wanna ask one more monetary question before we dive into what some of the research you and your team have been doing at, at Dallas. One of my treasured books is out of the Dallas Fed and it is a beautiful, thick monograph exceptionally smart set of essays in honor of John B. Taylor of Stanford University. It was yeah. a symposium that was done there. I've read the whole thing cover to cover. It is a math warning for those of you at the CFR. I'm sorry. Algebra, differential equations. But within that is some brilliance. Do you buy the traditional economics of the Fed? When the media trots out the Phillips curve, and you right. and I can go much deeper than yeah. that to answer: do you buy? The orthodoxy still works, or do we have to amend it?
3: So l- let me talk about some things that have been used historically that I think need to be adjusted. The Phillips Curve, for example, which talks about transmission. If you're at full employment, you would expect wage pressure. You expect that wage pressure to translate into price pressure and inflation. I would say because of globalization, <clears throat> i.e., this excess capacity issue, mm-hmm. and also what I talked about disruption, the fact that businesses have less pricing power, I think the Phillips curve is still is alive and well, but it's more muted. Meaning, to the extent there's wage pressure today, it's less likely to get transmitted to prices because customers won't accept a price increase. And um, because businesses can replace workers with technology, Right. When there's wage pressure, it puts some downward pressure on wage pressure. So that's one example. Um, I would say the second thing is the economy is dramatically different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago. You know, a lot of people like to refer back to the Reagan era, and it's. And here's what's so different. Uh, Aging demographics, so the trend over the last 30 years has been going like this. Slowing population growth, lower participation rates, and over the next 10 years, the bad news is it's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the few things we can forecast with a lot of confidence. And we think the participation rate today is 63%. It's likely to dip below 61%. So that's one issue. Globalization is different today than it was 20 and 30 years ago, meaning uh, we're much more globally intertwined, but. The the trade relationships, I think, are being misdiagnosed a little bit today, meaning uh, it's not a zero-sum game. Our relationship, for example, with Mexico, in our judgment, increases U.S. competitiveness, has caused jobs to stay in the United States that we'd otherwise lose most likely to Asia. And so you have to think about right. globalization differently. Disruption, mm-hmm. we've already mentioned. Then i got one last one, and I'll stop. And that is the debt supercycle. Mm-hmm. We are much more leveraged today than we were 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago and 30 years ago. Uh, government debt held by the public is now 76%. It's been going up. And right. present value of unfunded entitlements is now $46 trillion, also been going up. And because of aging demographics, makes it worse. And it's that last part I think that creates a headwind that isn't talked about that much. The reason it's not talked about is rates are so low. If you had more normal interest rates, I think we'd be having a much more intense national discussion on this.
0: I want to take the sum of those themes, but I've got to rip up script. So it
3: changes everything. The Fed analysis, you have to talk about the Fed model. I agree. It changes the Fed analysis. The world's different, so we've got to change the way we look at it. Okay,
0: We're going to do that in a minute, but I've got to rip up the script on one question. I want to speak not so much to the president as a public official. I know you're not going to take shots at any other public official. No, I am not. I know you're not. We're going to get that out of the way. But what I would suggest within the format of the Council on Foreign Relations and the heritage of this shop, we can go back to Jacob Viner Chicago, 1948, and talk about America as a mercantilist power. You're on the border with Mexico. They're going to build the wall. You can see it outside your window on Pearl Street. Yep. Are we going to end up being a mercantilist America? Is that a real risk?
3: It, it, it's it's a direction I we we would be well served not to go in. And here's the here's the problem, is the forty percent of the imports from Mexico today is U.S. content. Okay, means these goods going back and cro- forth across the border, adding jobs in the U.S. is not the only criteria. Are they globally competitive? Will they sustain? Will they be here 10 years from now? The relationship mm-hmm. with Mexico allows us to be more globally competitive. Here's the second problem, is <clears throat> geopolitically, I think this country, maybe we've taken it for granted, is very well served by having stable relationships with uh, stable relationship with our neighbor on our southern border. Uh, it has been it's a very helpful to the united states So my only my main concern i think nafta my own view and i've said this publicly will get renegotiated in a constructive way despite the rhetoric but the the mood in mexico uh, is much more and i go down there a lot and spend a lot of time with leaders there is more anti-american and my concern is when there's a presidential election in mexico in the summer of 2018 unless we unless we can improve this this tone it's right. more likely that you'll have to be anti-American to get elected as the president of Mexico in the summer of 2018. I think that would, that would not serve the United States very well.
0: Let us call us together here before we get to your questions here in about 12 minutes. I want to call us together some of the themes you and your research have been working on. Um, I go back and forth with Michael Dell, who's a leading technologist of your shop. Arguably, he jump-started. I mean, I think the the band Asleep at the Wheel would think they jump-started Austin, but we'll give the credit to Mr. Dell. The answer is technology disruption is owned by the 11th district. Uh, I know out in California they think they own it. No, you guys own it. What have you learned about technology disruption in our two Americas?
3: Uh, well, the first thing I've learned is no one owns it. It's everywhere. Uh, it's affecting every mall. It's affecting every business. It's even affecting higher education. Used to be, People used to think, higher education, it's not going to get disrupted. It's getting disrupted. It's everywhere. And it's springing up in every state in this country. And so it, what does it mean? It means workers are far more likely in the next 30 years to have to find a new career or a new job during their career, which means skills training is much more important. Worker adaptability is much more important. And the problem is worker mobility is declining. It's lower. So it means if you're going to find a new job, it's probably going to have to be locally, which is why we're spending a lot of time on the Dallas Fed and in our research focusing on creating these partnerships between businesses educational institutions, nonprofits, to, to, to create skills training for a whole series of jobs to let people who, get, who lose their job to get trained and back into the workforce. We're doing it much more in the United States, but not quickly okay, enough.
0: We did that when the Cowboys won six Super Bowls in a row. We called it the community college model. Is that the model that works? Or what's the new
3: community has college to be, model? Th- there's, community colleges are a part of this. It has to be a partnership. OK, so we have uh, a number of businesses in our district. They have to get together. And we help facilitate this at the Fed. We convene people. They have to say, we need so many pipe fitters, automotive technicians, registered nurses, insurance specialists, mm-hmm. on and on, uh, IT people. And we have enough slots that to the local community college, if we, tr- if we create a right. training program, We can take these people. You've seen
0: tangible results of that.
3: You see it all over the state and all around the country. My concern is it's not happening fast enough. We have to scale it up. And the reason it's not so easy to scale, it's got to be done locally. It's not the kind of thing you scale nationally so easily, because it has to be done locally, because worker mobility is lower. That's why this is so hard.
0: Link this idea and, frankly, many other ideas to the tragedy, I haven't read about it in Texas, but we have an opioid epidemic across a beleaguered Middle West. I'll pick on West yeah. Virginia and Ohio. I'm sorry, Senator Portman, that I did that. But there are these geographies yeah. of incredible disassociation from the world of economics yeah. and the world of a better America, as President Obama called it. What do you need to do in the 11th district to jumpstart those people who are truly outside
3: the good society. so all the work we do first of all there 's a trend as you know, people moving from rural areas into to cities uh, but the, the the big trend and the big thing that you keep coming back to is if you have lower levels of educational attainment, you are more likely to have poor health you 're more likely to use drugs you 're more likely to be incarcerated. everything that 's bad is more likely that you 're likely to have a shorter lifespan and so I think the two things that can be done. I talked about workforce <coughs> development, but there's a second thing which also spent a lot of time on early childhood literacy. So we have to improve right. the school system. But what happens is all our work shows that we look at says if you start kindergarten behind, you never catch up. Okay, it's already too late. Yeah, Minneapolis
0: and has done great work. They, they do understand.
3: great work in Minneapolis. Fed on this, and so and we've piggybacked on that. Zero to five. We've got to do much more in this country. Why
0: can't you come on? It, 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 Away from the Dallas Fed, yeah. we're dealing with a guy out of Kansas who owns leadership and own great service to Harvard Business School. Why can't we jumpstart this? What's the impediment? What is the constraint to getting the five-year-olds jumpstart?
3: I'll give you my own view. And this is somebody, I'm speaking for myself, I've spent a lot of time in the nonprofit world, Ford Foundation, mm-hmm. on this. First, awareness, just making clear people has to be done locally. Because in other words, you're going to you're, you have to do this with a local program. So you've got to make business leaders aware of it. Government is unlikely to allocate enough money to solve this. So it means business leaders and nonprofits have to get together, or you have to form nonprofits so that kids are read to if their parents don't do it uh, at ages one, two, three, four, and five. And so I think this takes leadership, and this is something the bu- business leaders, mayors in this country are spending time on. But it's going to take, I think, if we're waiting for the government to solve this problem. You say I think
0: the government. You mean Washington. What does Washington any government or state
3: government. government. If, you, if you're waiting for government to solve this, you can stop. It's they, they can do it. But it's got to be done from leadership, leaders locally. I and mean, I'm talking business leaders, community leaders, nonprofit leaders. And yes, local uh, mm-hmm. government leaders need to take ownership of that I think they are and this is one of those things we're just not doing it nearly fast enough given the demographic trends which suggest if you if you don't improve educational attainment levels 20 years from now wealth inequality is going to grow much much to a much greater degree
0: within that wealth inequality and you mentioned this earlier in our discussion is the concept of age and you talk about an aging america yeah Um, i i looked last night out on twitter there's a wonderful a, uh, a six-decade distribution of Japanese population dynamics—it's a terrible problem there. Uh, to, to see those I- issues, how do we deal with that as a public policy?
3: And by the way, I'll just—I'll mention on Japan—they have a much worse demographic issue than we do, mm-hmm. and they've had very slow demographic de- geographic uh, GDP growth. The one thing they have that we don't—they have very high savings rate, and they can—they're they're highly leveraged, but because. Um, it, it, the central bank has bought a lot of their debt. Mm-hmm. They can restructure this. We, in, we are very highly leveraged also. So we really, we've got to grow faster. And the problem is, uh, as the workforce ages, we can create incentives for people to work longer. But there's no getting around even if we do that. We're just delaying the inevitable. Participation rates are declining. Now, how do you solve that? Workforce development would help. The second thing that would help is uh, immigration. I know it's controversial, sensible immigration reform. Immigration uh, has been key to this country. Immigrants and their children have made up over half the workforce growth in this country over the last 20 years. And it's our judgment at the Dallas Fed that if you go out the next 20 years, it's going to be higher than that because of aging demographics. So if we do things that limit sensible immigration, we are likely to slow yeah. uh, GDP.
0: Based on what you're saying, you're not going to get the new slots at the White House. Uh, with, 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 within that is what is the tone out of Washington and what many perceive to be a anger across this nation about immigrants, anger about this, anger about that. I'm sure you see that within the 11th district. How do policymakers move beyond the angers of
3: 2017? Um, so, actually, within the 11th district, I think I wouldn't I, I would say it's a little bit more balanced, the view, because of the fact we're right on the border with Mexico. Uh, I would say the following When I go around uh, Texas, New Mexico, and Louisiana, which is primary, right. and I talk go to rural areas, I, I, and we talk about what the actual trends are, uh, I think, and we've talked about this fact, globalization is increasingly being conflated with technology-enabled disruption. What I mean by that, 20 years ago, many jobs that were lost in this country were due to globalization. And we can go industry by industry and give examples. Today, not so much. Uh, it's, it, technology-enabled disruption is far more responsible for job displacement and the trends we're seeing than probably globalization is. And then to the point where I think part, key elements of globalization are more likely to be part of the solution than part Mm -hmm. of the problem, because I think a lot of the disruption we're seeing is due to technology. right? uh, And I think we're we're mixing them up. And I don't think we're being well served by it.
0: How does the Dallas Fed, I mean, uh, seriously, how does the Dallas Fed respond to the idea that on this morning in Abilene, there's somebody with brown skin worried they're going to be picked up by the US government? That's a new feeling for millions of Americans. What does your research show? Is a better outcome to that well?
3: I guess I would observe the following, and I've said this publicly a few times, uh, several times, and I'll say it again: Um, consumer is 65-70 percent of the economy. Okay, and so I'm insensitive to anything that affects consumer spending, uh, particularly among groups that have a very high propensity to spend, which tend to be lower, lower lower-middle-income groups. So. Health care reform I'm very sensitive to. To the extent people are more concerned about access to health care, access to be able to get subsidies or be able to be eligible for Medicaid, they're more likely to save than to spend. And there are millions of immigrants living in this country. And to your point, they're not going out and shopping. They're staying home. They're afraid if they go out, they may not come home. Uh, On margin, and it's too soon for the data to pick it up, but I'm hearing it anecdotally, and I believe we're going to see it, I think those people are more likely to save than to spend. And those two effects have some muting effect on consumer spending Mm -hmm. and therefore GDP growth.
0: Within that, and with the responsibilities that Chair Yellen has, I don't want you to speak for the chair, but I, I would suggest that she has a huge burden and responsibility as we somehow normalize ourselves back to rates. Do you believe we can do that for that person in Abilene or for the rich guy outside Dallas who's employing 800 people? Can we do it in a st- way of stability? Do you worry within the media about the doom and gloom if we raise rates six times in
3: 2017? Well, There'll be instability. How so do you respond to So this? my own view is the following. Um, that's how
0: I got raise rates six times. In there, I
3: got that. We're not going to do that. Okay. Uh, in, a, in, in a rapid way, um, <laughs> I believe because of these secular headwinds. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I we say this. I say this over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think while I believe we should be removing accommodation because I think we're getting we're near full employment and while it's been frustratingly slow, we're moving toward our inflation target, although I think not yet. Over the next few years, we should be removing accommodation. But it's got to be done patiently and gradually. Uh, for those who say, why aren't you raising rates more dramatically, I think these secular headwinds we just talked about, these, these mm-hmm. factors that make this economy different than 10 years ago and 20 years ago, means that we at the central bank need to be much more careful mm-hmm how we remove accommodation. And that's why my own view is everybody, every people, everyone around the table has an independent view. I believe we should remove accommodation, but gradually and patiently, Mm -hmm. because I don't think this economy is running away from us. I don't think inflation is running away from us. I wish it were. And I think we need to do this in a very careful way.
0: You have a wonderful heritage here for this question, the idea of Dallas McTeer, Fisher, Kaplan, and yet you lived for a long time in the People's Republic of Cambridge. How far is Dallas away from Rosengren and Boston? What is that divide? Where's the Venn diagram so Eric, of, of a different view versus Dallas?
3: It's interesting. I knew Eric Rosengren when I was in Cambridge. And uh, you know I think uh, the great thing about the Fed I've learned, there's great, they're great people, uh, but around the table, um, each of them Gives an does an independent analysis of the economy and gives a view on what's going on in their district. And so, um, you know, my views on this. Uh, I, well, I won't I won't compare them to others, but they're very similar to many people around the table. Mm-hmm. But they come each come from different districts. There are some things we have in common, uh, and a number of things that I said. These secular trends affect all of us. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think I hear about everywhere is the skills gap. So I'll, I'll just get this in the skills gap in the United States. Meaning, with all these issues we just talked about in educational attainment, there are more openings for skilled workers than the supply of workers. So part of this educational attainment issue and this, the urgent need for workforce development is we're missing enormous opportunity. And this is probably true in every district in the country where their businesses cannot find skilled workers. I think I quoted the NFIB survey, small business survey, unless right. I think almost 50%, I think 48% of them reported they can't find workers to fill skilled jobs. So this is a big opportunity. So while each district in the United States is different, there's a number of these trends <coughs> that, that, and themes we have in common.
0: What are the adjacency effects of low taxes? Texas is on fire. It's always been on fire, and a lot of that is tax policy. I looked at the personal savings rate to disposable income, savings rate to disposable income back to 1947. And the regime seems to be one with a lower aggregate tax set, and then the next 10, 20 years was with a higher tax asset, which brought down savings. Is that the Texas distinction? Is different tax policy? I think
3: think there are a number of things. First of all, uh, pro-business culture, a uh, relatively lower level of regulation. Uh, yes, central location. Yes, there's the tax issue. Some people attribute some of it to the weather. Uh, but I, I, know, I can tell you this, having spent a lot of my life traveling to Texas with my dad, a jewelry salesperson, uh, Texas is a very welcoming place for people who move there. Most people I meet, most CEOs I know in state, are not from Texas. They've moved there. They migrated their business there. Taxes might not have been the reason. It might have been workforce availability. Uh, Mm -hmm. It might have been the fact that other businesses that are related to them have moved there. So there's an ecosystem that makes it a very attractive place for businesses to move.
0: We're going to get to questions. I mean, there's one more question. Ben, I'm going to go to you first, just so you get a warning. I'm going to go to Ben Steele here with the first question. But I've got one more question. Kathleen Hayes and I go back and forth on this, the idea, I hate this phrase, a border tax. Isn't there no border? It's a tax against everything. Where are you and where are your PhDs on the efficacy of an import tax that I believe uh, has more countries involved than Mexico?
3: So uh, I'll answer this uh, in an a apolitical way, as you would expect. I would expect. Uh, yeah. So our analysis is as follows. Um, and I'll go through the pros and the cons, which is the only way I know how to do it. Um, uh, the, the, the challenges will be there are going to be winners and losers from this. Uh, in, for example, retailers have made very clear, particularly yes. in our district, that it will eat into their margins. And I think a lot of people and businesses are, and people are focusing on the fact that, boy, businesses they didn't think imported that much, turn out to import a lot more than they thought. Imports are very critical to competitiveness. And then the second issue is, what's the effect on consumer prices here? Now, the counter to that has been, but the currency will adjust. But the truth is, it's a big uncertainty how much the currency will adjust and will adjust enough to offset the fact that uh, this border tax has to be paid by consumers here. And then the third thing, which you don't know and you can't quantify, is retaliation. What's the likelihood of retaliation? Uh, It is critical to the United States and certainly to US domiciled companies to be able to sell goods overseas. A lot's been made recently about the fact that of S&P 500, neighborhood of half revenues and profits come from outside the United States. If there's retaliation, what will be effect on US companies and US employment? So I think there's a lot of uncertainties. If you could get through those five years from now, Certainly, there will, it will create incentives for people to locate manufacturing here right. or locate facilities here. But I think there are enormous number of uncertainties. So, and I, I don't think there's been enough time to analyze, in no. my judgment, uh, particularly the retaliation issue. What, what's the likelihood? And so, I, I think that's one of the reasons why this yeah. may, you know, people are very uh, concerned about implementing this kind of policy.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.